Well, uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Dan, Dan Montgomery. In case you, you don't know me, our senior pastor, Pastor Randy, is going to be on uh, vacation this week and next week. So uh, that's, that's why I'm, I'm here. And this morning, uh, we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 9. So we're taking a little break from our s- series through the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to spend two weeks in, the, in Acts chapter 9. So you can uh, get opened up there to Acts chapter 9. We'll be looking at the uh, first nine verses this morning. Um, and Acts, obviously, in your, in your New Testament. But I just want to point out as we get started that as you read your Old Testament, um, if you've read through the Bible, especially if you've done it multiple times, one thing, one of the things that would stick out as you read through your Old Testament is the fact that God, that described Yahweh or the Lord, is repeatedly described and portrayed as a warrior or as a conqueror. Right, let me just give you a couple real quick examples of that. So just real rapid fire, a couple verses here from the Old Testament, a couple different places. So Psalm 68 verses 1 and 2. Listen how God's described as a, a warrior or a conqueror. Uh, where in verse 1 it says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As, max, as wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before the Lord. Or Isaiah, from the prophets, Isaiah forty-two thirteen. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Or how about a history book, Exodus Chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, we hear the song of Moses that then, uh, after the Israelites had crossed the Red Sea, and uh, they had done it on dry ground, but the Egyptian army had been swept away by the water, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. And I could go on with examples. If you were in uh, the Sunday evening service last week, as uh, Pastor Don took us through the end of chapter 2, we saw how the Lord delivered Sihon into the hands of the Israelites. And if you come back tonight, you'll get to hear how the Lord delivers Og into the hands of the Israelites, showing himself to be a mighty warrior, a conqueror. Um, So as you read through the Old Testament, you see, wow, God is a mighty warrior, a conqueror. But that's that's an Old Testament thing, Right? I mean, that's not how the New Testament portrays God, is it? Right? We kind of have this difference sometimes in our minds between the Old Testament God and the New Testament, right? The conqueror, warrior, that's, that's Old Testament God, right? Well, we're looking at Acts chapter 9 this morning, and I think we'll see that God is still a conqueror. We're going to see how Christ's grace conquers Yes, conquers is the right word there. Conquers even the worst of sinners and the fiercest of his enemies. So, so you stand while I read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, and then we'll have our pastoral prayer, which will come from uh, Psalm 11. First, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. 
But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Would you pray with me? It is in you, Lord, that we take refuge. It's in you that we find our refuge this morning, and we need refuge. Many of us, even just this past week, have faced uh, just large obstacles We've done battle with our own sin. We've, done, we've, we've had conflict within our own family. We've had sickness, sometimes very daunting sickness to face. We think even especially of, of Tim Wassum this week and uh, the, the brain bleed and all the questions and uncertainty uh, he faced this week. He needed you for refuge. So thank you that you are the refuge for us this morning. And Lord, it is not surprising that some would say to us that we should hide, that we should give up, that we should flee like a bird to our mountain, as it says in the psalm. For it's true that the wicked bend the bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Lord, we admit it can be intimidating to strive to live as the upright in heart, to follow you, to align ourselves with your word. And we can be tempted to despair when it seems, as we look around, that even the foundations are destroyed. And we ask, what can the righteous do in a world, in a culture like ours? But you have assured us that things are not as out of control as they may seem that seeking first your kingdom is not in vain. So what we see when we look around, we admit, is confusion and corruption and unrighteousness. When we look inside ourselves, we see weakness and sin. But by faith, we know exactly what your word declares, that you are in your holy temple, that your throne is in heaven and you reign. Your eyes do see You test the children of man. You test the righteous. As much as wickedness seems to abound, you hate the wicked and the one who loves violence. And so we praise you. We thank you. We ask for help in trusting that you reign today. You reign in this age as much as any other age or era. In fact, we know that Christ has ascended. He will come again to judge, and those who take refuge in him are safe. So make us ones who truly trust in you. Make us ones who entrust our souls to our faithful creator while doing good. May that be what marks our life. 
We trust you to rain coals on the wicked. We trust your vengeance, not our own. We trust that you are the one who love righteous deeds. And because of the gracious gift of righteousness that comes by faith, we will indeed behold your faith, face, and there is no greater good. So may that be our comfort this morning. May that be our experience this morning to see you. Make yourself known, especially right now, through the preaching of your word. So Lord, I ask that you'd open my lips and my, la- my mouth would declare your praise. And we pray glory to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit this morning. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we kind of parachute in here to the middle of the book of Acts, right, jumping into Acts chapter 9, we, we find ourselves in the middle of a story that has already begun. Right, if you were to go back to chapter 1 of Acts, you'd see that Jesus, risen from the dead, completes his enthronement by being raised to heaven. That's what's happening in chapter 1. Then, as a sign of his victory, as he kept reading into Acts chapter 2, you'd see how he pours out the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's actually a completion of his mission to draw all men to himself, to, to be the one who reigns over all the nations. So he pours out his Spirit to help complete that mission. And so this small band of his followers... Uh, quickly grows into a large minority within the Jewish community there in Jerusalem. But the Jewish authorities, the same ones who had killed Jesus just a few months earlier, they are more than a little perturbed that this Jesus movement still seems to have some steam, and they would love to find a way to stop it. That's what you'd find as you read through Acts chapter 3, and four and five and and by and large the, the authorities they really want to punish what they see as the renegades the ones who are proclaiming that Jesus the one who was crucified has been raised from the dead and has ascended as Lord and at first they try to throw him into prison that doesn't work you could read about that in Acts chapter four and and actually after multiple attempts to silence them uh, the Jesus's disciples. They're as stubborn about not backing down as ever. We, we read this in Acts chapter 5, towards the end of that chapter, beginning in verse 27. We read that when they, that is the, the authorities, had brought them, that is the disciples, uh, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in, teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And in verse 33, we hear the, uh, the authorities' reaction to Peter. Because when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Now, admittingly, some from within their midst advise a little more cautious, hands-off strategy. Take uh, Gamaliel, the Pharisee Gamaliel, for example. We keep reading. There was a Pharisee in this council 
named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, he stood up and gave orders to, to put the men outside for a little while. Let's have a little middle meeting, just the council themselves. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. And then Gamaliel is about to go into a little bit of a local history lesson about some of the other uprisings and renegades and miscreants they've had running around Jerusalem in the recent past. He says that before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And verse 39 goes on to say that they took his advice. But as you keep reading in Acts, you realize they didn't take his advice for very long. Because by Acts chapter 7, Stephen, one of these disciples, is preaching there in Jerusalem. And again, the same message. You need to repent of your opposition to Jesus as Lord. And they like his message no more than any of the messages before. In fact, in verse 58 of chapter 7, We read that after his speech, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as we'll keep reading, we'll see Saul takes the exact opposite approach of Gamaliel. Saul is the leader of the zealous faction here, the ones who really want to stamp out with violence this Jesus movement. Right In verse eight, or verse 1 of chapter 8, Saul, we're told, approved of his execution. That is Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And so as we come to our passage this morning, we read, I'll read that again, those first two verses of Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciple of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, that is Jesus' followers, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Right? Saul is actively hunting down Christians. The opposition to Stephen didn't keep them contained to Jerusalem. They've scattered now. And so he needs to head out to Damascus. And with the backing of the high priest, that would have been Caiaphas, the same high priest who was there at the trial of Jesus. So with the backing of the Caiaphas, Saul sets out on about a 150-mile trip towards Damascus. And here's the assessment we can make at this point. No one seems more committed to opposing the claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, 
than Saul of Tarsus. Right? At this moment, in our story as we read it, there is no one on all of planet Earth who is more zealously opposed to the claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, than Saul of Tarsus. Should Saul's opposition surprise us? I mean, just, just imagine you only knew Saul as, uh, as, as we later come to refer to him as he, he gets referred to in, when he's more in the Greek-speaking world and he's writing the letters of our New Testament. Right? We know that this is the guy who, who wrote in the letter to the Romans that I am not ashamed of the gospel. He, his letters to these churches around the Mediterranean area end up making up 13 of the 27 books in our New Testament. So if that's all you knew about this guy, yeah, you'd probably find his opposition pretty surprising. But also, if you were reading those letters and not just knowing that they exist, you wouldn't actually be that surprised because he brings up over and over again his former life as a blasphemer, right? That's what our scripture reading from 1 Timothy said. He, he calls himself, quote, a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. Or as he puts it in Galatians 1.13, he, he, he persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So again, if you read those letters, you knew Paul was a missionary. You know, oh, he had this past life of, op, of, of opposing Jesus. But what might really catch us off guard and surprise us is if in our minds, being a follower of Christ automatically follows from being someone who'd committed your life to the study and obedience of the law. Someone who'd been raised according to Scripture and then in their adult life took ownership of it by studying and looking to obey Scripture as as strongly as possible, if you think that automatically means you're a Jesus follower, you will find Paul's opposition quite surprising because that's exactly who Paul or Saul, I'm going to go back and forth. I just know I'm going to slip and say Saul and Paul multiple times this sermon. That's okay. Same person. Saul, number one opponent of the church, was, as the way he describes it in Acts chapter 22, a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city, in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of the Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. Or as he puts it in Galatians 1, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Or he really lays it out for us in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 4. He says, if if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence to flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? His heritage is as perfect and according to Scripture and tradition as any Jew could hope. He can even trace his heritage back to which tribe he came from, which wasn't the norm for a lot of the Jews in his day. Right? Wow, back to the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And it wasn't just like a, a, a cultural thing. No, he personally was committed to it. As he says, as the law 
a Pharisee, right? The strictest interpretation of the law. He's able to even finish off verse 6 by saying, as to righteousness under the law, B plus. No, no, no. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But here's the ironic, just the, the disconnect. As law of Pharisee, as a righteousness under the law, but the other thing he says about himself in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, a persecutor of the church. Somehow, Saul was simultaneously blameless as to righteousness under the law and also a persecutor of the church. Blameless as to righteousness under the law, and yet at the same time a persecutor of the church. How can that happen? How, how, can, how can you be so committed to the law, God's good and perfect law, and be so opposed to its fulfillment? Is it, how, how could this happen? Is it, is it a problem with the law? No. No. This is a sign of the depth of the sinfulness of not just Saul's heart, but the human heart. Right? The sinful heart, as Saul demonstrates, is so hard. Right? It's like this rock. I decided to grab a uh, visual aid. Sometimes Pastor Randy will bring up like a biography of Paul Tillich as like a visual aid. He brings biographies. I bring rocks. Seems about right. Um, right? Our hearts are like this rock. Just imagine that I take this rock and I just dip it in water. Like I got a bowl of water. I just dip it in the water and I hold it there for like a minute. How much of that water has it absorbed? Now let's say, I mean, I just, I just put it in the water. I just leave it there for like a month. How much water is this rock going to absorb? I don't think any. I, mean, I wouldn't expect to be able to like wring it out and like drink from it. That's not how it works, right? Is it a problem because of the water? No. It's the hardness of the rock. In the same way, our hearts when they're hard, no matter how deeply or how long they are dipped even to something as good as the perfect law of God, if it's still hard, if it's still dead, it will be found to be opposing God. That's its natural state. Unless our hearts are changed by Christ's sovereign conquering grace they'll be they will be as absorbent to the goodness of god to true righteousness as this rock right, this is true for us we can be in the deep end of christian living but have no grasp of the gospel right, you can be deeply involved even in a church like ours and a stranger to true spiritual life. You know, we, we have in our, in our house, uh, in our kitchen, I wonder if some of you have the same thing, uh, a couple of uh, recipe books. And one of them is just a three-ring binder uh, filled with some recipes 
um, just we've, we've added to it over the years, but that binder and the original recipes in it were originally given as a wedding gift to us uh, by some friends at our, our old church, Scott and Lornell Curry. And they were great members at that church. They were obviously at our wedding, and um, yeah, they were just a, a great couple, and we, we knew them for, for many years, uh, or at least for a number of years, back when we were at Grace Church DuPage, and um, they were a few years older than us, but they were thinking about going on the mission field. Well, then one day something happened. They realized they weren't actual, genuine Christians. Uh, and so suddenly, uh, I remember it was, the, uh, it was a baptism service. Suddenly, Scott and Lornell are up there giving their testimony about how they'd been really committed to a, pre- a Bible-preaching church and th- interested in missions and yet realized they'd never really responded to the actual gospel. All of their Christian busyness, as good as it was, solid as it was in and of itself, was really just trust in themselves. It wasn't a real response to the gospel. That's where we can be. It's possible to be involved in a solid church, to be interested in lots of good things and completely miss the gospel. Paul's problem, Saul's problem, was not that he had been studying the wrong book. It's that, that up to that point, his heart had not been changed. It had not been conquered by Christ's grace. But... As we see that for ourselves, and clearly as we keep reading, we'll see for Saul, Christ's conquering grace, when it does conquer us, brings us low. Let me read verses 3 through 6 from Acts chapter 9. Read that. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said to him, Who who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So up to this point, Saul has been heading on his way. Right? That's exactly how it describes it. He went on his way. But as he's stopped, he's brought low both physically physically and spiritually, right? He falls to the ground as the light from heaven shone around him. And the the men who were traveling with him, they stood speechless, right? Their trek, their trip has been brought to a halt. All their zeal and all of their gumption was no match for the Lord. But it's not just that their traveling gets stopped. It's not just that they physically are brought low and brought to the ground No, much more from that, what we see happening in these verses is that Paul or Saul is brought low spiritually. He is humbled, right? This is an encounter is like God throughout one of those, you know, those spike strips that police will sometimes use to like stop a highway chase or something like that. Just completely bring the vehicle to a stop, 
Right, that's what happens here. This is a, spirit, a spiritual spike strip just getting thrown down in, in Paul's path. Just think about how this would process for Saul. Because he, he certainly knew right away that he was encountering the Lord himself. All right, this, this light from heaven that shines around him, he knows he has having some sort of encounter with the God whose laws he's spent so much time studying. I mean, you just go through the Old Testament or throughout the scriptures, light is a common image for the Lord. Uh, just one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 104, begins this way. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Or, or even in the New Testament, what Paul will later write in 1 Timothy 6.16, he, he describes God as the one who dwells in unapproachable light. So he knows he is dealing with God here. Even the whole experience that him and his traveling companions are having, it, it, it echoes the experience of the Israelites on Mount Sinai, right? where Deuteronomy 4.12 describes that experience as, like, as, as being, uh, the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. That's exactly what Paul and his traveling companions are having here. They're not seeing no one, only hearing the sound. This is clearly an encounter with that same God who gave the law that Paul had been so dedicated to. So what must it have been like for Saul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, to be directly addressed by the God of the Hebrews and not hear, hey, good job. Keep up the good work. I'm cheering for you. Hey, Saul. Man, good, good job. I wish I had more Sauls like you. Wish I had more like you, Saul. You're doing it right. No. Instead, what he hears, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? So much is packed into that little sentence. Why are you persecuting me? Me, Saul, the people you're rounding up to throw into jail, the people you're seeking to kill. Saul, how do I, the Lord, feel about them? I love them as my own body. When you're persecuting them, you're persecuting me. Your opposition to them is you have found yourself opposing God. I mean, at this moment, suddenly, all of Paul's supposed righteousness, his blamelessness according to the law, gets exposed as a fraud. It had led him to be opposing God. He is absolutely humbled and brought low. And in fact, our own confrontation with Jesus will do the same. We will have moments where suddenly we're forced to recognize the sinfulness of our own sin, right? That, that those, those, those biting words 
that impatience, that kind of uh, quick impulse of, of lust, whatever it may be, will have moments in our lives where suddenly we're forced to realize, like, well, that says something more deeply about me and my heart than I'm comfortable admitting. It eventually catches up, and suddenly we're forced to say, whoa, I'm not just a person who occasionally messes up when I don't get enough sin or I, get kind of, or I don't get enough sleep or I get kind of hangry or whatever it is. Like, no, my heart is opposed to God and his ways. And so we'll find ourselves, like Paul, suddenly fearing. But what did we sing earlier? An amazing grace, second verse, first line. Think of the theology packed into that line. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." I think we often understand the grace my fears relieved, right? Your sin's forgiven. Whew. Grace relieved my fears of condemnation. But what's that whole thing about? It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace taught my heart to fear? Yes. It's God's conquering grace that, helps, that lets us see our sinfulness. See our state of fear that we should be in without the grace that also relieves our fears, right? Christ will regularly, but mercifully, by his grace, bring us low in our Christian lives. The lights are going to get turned on in kind of the dusky basement of our hearts, and we are not going to always like what we see. Being conquered by grace can feel like death. It did for Paul, and it will often feel that way for us. But as we'll see, Christ's conquering grace also redirects us. It redirects Paul. It lifts him up and sends him in a new direction. That's why I keep reading in verse 6, picking up where we left off, where the Lord says, Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Isn't it interesting that in this journey, Paul somehow still ends up where he wanted to go? He left for Damascus, and uh, here we are, verse 8. He arrives in Damascus. But he arrives in Damascus so different than how he thought he'd arrive in Damascus. Right? He's being told now to go there. He's not doing it on his own gumption, on his own will. No, he was told by the Lord, rise, enter the city. You will be told what you are to do. Right? You will be told what you are to do. Saul has lost control of his life. See, grace puts Jesus in charge. We sang earlier, again, the kind of uh, amazing grace, and uh, I think we, it's Chris Tomlin, I think he was kind of updated it and gave that catchy hook chorus we sang that, my chains are gone, 
I've been set free. And that is a glorious truth. We've been set free from condemnation through Christ's work on the cross being applied to our lives. We've been set free from the power of sin in our lives. Our chains are gone. We've been set free. The inability to please God, right? Those chains are gone. We've been set free. But Saul is learning that there are also chains of grace. He's not just freed from those things for no particular purpose. No, he's, and we are freed to obey, to serve God and others. So as Paul goes on, Saul goes on, and he lives his missionary life as Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, he will repeatedly refer to himself not as someone who has no chains. No, he will refer to himself as a servant of Christ Jesus, like he does in Romans 1 or Galatians 1 or in Titus 1, he changes it up and says, a servant of God. Same thing. He repeatedly refers to himself as servant. And, and maybe even more shockingly is the way he describes himself and his life in 2 Corinthians 2.14. Here, he's, he's having to tell the Corinthians why he wasn't able to kind of go along with his travel plans as he'd originally intended. That as this traveling missionary, he had hoped to go one way, and then through the Lord's sovereign guiding, guidance, had to go another way. He had one plans for you know, this part of his life, and he ends up having to go another way. He's getting redirected. But in verse 14, he then says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Let me, let me repeat with that phrase. Christ always leads us, Paul says, in triumphal procession. Triumphal procession. What does he mean when he says triumphal procession? Is that like the sort of thing that either the Diamondbacks or the Rangers are going to have after one of them wins the World Series here in the next week or so, right? They have this big parade and it's, you know, they're on the bus driving through the town and they're waving and everyone's cheering and it's a big party. Is that the, the triumphal procession that Paul is thinking about here? Like, hey, he's leading us always in like this victorious parade. There are, uh, there's even some, some translations kind of lean towards that and they just said that Christ always leads us in triumph. Could sound that way, like, yeah, we're just victors. We're having our World Series victory parade. That would be a good metaphor for what's going on here if, and I think this would actually be a really cool idea, is if the winner of the World Series got to drag the loser of the World Series behind them in the parade. So, like, the Diamondbacks win, and then all the Texas Rangers team just have to, like, walk behind, like, chained up uh, behind them. That I'd actually tune in for that. Um, but that's the picture Paul means. When he says, I'm being led in triumphal procession, he means I'm being led as one who's been conquered. Right? This idea of a triumphal procession, it's, it's something that, like victory parades in our days, kind of the, that sort of thing, was very common in the, in the Roman, Roman area. We have tons of re- recorded instances of these triumphal processions where the Roman conqueror 
would lead their shamed captives in a triumphal procession. One, one, one commentator just kind of gives this background info, info on the triumphal procession. What is it? He says, The triumphal procession was a lavish parade conducted in Rome to celebrate great victories in significant military campaigns. They were ostentatious celebrations filled with valiant soldiers, the spoils of war, and the most theatrical pomp and circumstance Rome could muster. Moreover, the triumphal procession demonstrated Rome's prowess as the victor, not only by parading the spoils of war, but also by leading in triumph the most important leaders and intimidating warriors of the enemy now presented as conquered slaves. The highest honor any Roman Caesar or general could receive would be to lead one of these parades. Conversely, to be led as a prisoner in such a triumphal procession signaled one's utter defeat. Paul says he's one of the prisoners being led in that triumphal procession. That's what God's grace, Christ's grace, has done for him. He brings glory to Jesus, his conqueror, the Lord, as he's led along in triumphal procession. God's conquering grace has completely redirected his life, and this is what Christ's grace makes us. We are led as servants. We are led of servants of Jesus to display the glory and majesty wherever he leads in our lives, to display the glory, the glory and majesty of our conqueror. You see, Christ's grace was the only thing powerful enough to conquer the zeal of Saul. It was the only thing powerful enough to transform his and our rock-hard hearts into ones soft enough and living enough to obey. Christ still conquers by his grace. This is a story meant to help us understand not just something that happened to Paul, but help us understand ourselves and what God is doing in our world. The same Lord who conquered his enemy Saul and made him into a chosen instrument conquers us by his gospel of grace so that we can proclaim that and live and out, proclaim his excellencies to others. Let's pray. We praise you as our Lord. We come to you as your servants. Uh, dig out for us an ear that can actually hear and respond to your word. Make that one that marks us all, especially this, this morning. If there are some here who maybe are familiar with your words in a fleshly way, but have never been transformed and actually responded to the grace of the gospel, Lord. Show your conquering might and grace in that way. Again, but make us all servants of your grace as we go from here this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.